Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? This afternoon, I'm talking to child psychologist Kristen Olenforst. Among other things, Kristen is an expert in childhood anxiety. We begin our conversation untangling some common misconceptions about pediatric anxiety. How to know when a child's anxiety is getting serious enough to warrant therapy, different types of therapy for children, and how to find a good therapist for your child. We then dive into a somewhat embarrassing, but hopefully instructive round of embarrassing blunders, where Kristen and I trade off describing our own struggles and insecurities as parents, despite being psychologists and therapists ourselves. Enjoy. Kristen Olenforst, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. You studied art as an undergrad at Notre Dame and ended up getting a PhD in clinical psychology. So what happened there? That's that's a great question. In growing up, I had always envisioned that I would be an artist. I loved art in, I had discovered it really in high school and found that when doing art, specifically when painting, time would stop for me and I could just pour myself into whatever I was doing and time would disappear. Everything else like worries would stop, other thoughts would stop. And I loved it. And so, of course, I began exploring what careers I could have in the field of art. And I found myself really drawn to design. It felt like doing some sort of graphic design or web design might be a nice blend of the traditional creative arts, but also more applicable in the everyday world. So I wouldn't be, you know, destitute artist, unable to pay my bills. So I, I majored in studio art and design with a minor in art history, and that was my intent. I I got a job right out of college as a web designer, was all excited, and, you know, within the first six months or so, I found myself sitting in a cube, actually sharing a cube, to be exact, with two other people, Not not a large cube, sharing a cube with two other people, staring at HTML coding day in, day out. And by the end of the year, I thought, this is not for me. This is not how I intended to live my life. And I'm not living, I'm not living the life of an artist that I thought. So I had what was somewhat of a quarter life crisis. So here I am, early 20s, feeling really disillusioned about my career path and my career choice. And I began exploring, like, what else could I do? And I felt as if I had really missed the mark. I felt as if I had chosen wrong in college. I come from a family of people who all stick, like, stuck with the choices that they made. So this was very off the mark. And in reflecting on what else I had really loved in college, I had taken one or two undergrad psych courses And the one, I took two, but the one that really stood out to me was um, a course on developmental psych. And I remember being fascinated by the parent-child attachment, learning about the connection that uh, comes about through breastfeeding, learning about all of the early developmental milestones and how the psychological growth of a child is influenced by parenting, et cetera. And I had loved it. So 
that made me wonder, maybe, maybe there's something there. I felt so passionately about that, that perhaps that's worth exploring. So um, I began looking into psych programs and realized that unfortunately, as an artist, I had none of the prerequisites to apply for graduate school. So at the time, I, I basically I quit my web design job on a Friday and went back to school on a Monday. I enrolled in uh, undergraduate courses that would count as prereqs at a local university, actually two local universities, so that I could get all the different prerequisites across the course of a year. And I took a job at the Cheesecake Factory to pay my bills in the meantime. I will say to this date that I had to study probably harder for the Cheesecake Factory menu test <laughs> than I did for many of the uh, actual academic courses that I was taking. That menu is dense. But, um, you know, in the end, during that year, I applied for grad. I, I thought, this is a good way of testing. Let me take a whole lot of courses in psychology all at once. And if I like this, I'm going to apply for grad school. If I don't, then it's back to the drawing board. And very quickly, I discovered that I really liked all the material, most of it, most of the material. I was not a big fan of statistics and research design, but all of the other parts, and especially the parts having to do with developmental psych and with child development, I really liked. And so during that year, I applied to grad school, to master's programs and doctoral programs. I've cast a pretty wide net. And then I crossed my fingers. I basically sent in applications that said, here are the courses that I'm enrolled in. Here are the ones I'm scheduled to be in next semester. Here's my GPA as an artist. Please let me in. And much to my delight, uh, I garnered acceptance into um, a couple different options and then chose UT Southwestern here in Dallas, Texas. And um, the rest is, I suppose, a work in progress. So I loved I loved the program once I got in, and I will say that I use, I use a lot of my creativity that I fostered during college in working with children. Awesome. Such a cool story. I, and I have a little pet theory, or I don't know if it's, a, it's the beginning of this of a theory, but a lot of the, I've just found that a lot of the therapists and psychologists I really admire um, had, like, after a while of getting to know them, I, I uncover that they've had unusual paths to getting to be a therapist or a psychologist. Um, and I don't, I wonder if there's something to that. Like, how do you, you kind of alluded to it, but do you think your training as an artist has helped you as a therapist and psychologist? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, I understand what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. I know several of my favorite friends and colleagues who work in the field do have either uh, a well-known or kind of a secret or hidden other prior or simultaneous life in terms of career interests. And yes, absolutely. Now in retrospect, I'm so grateful for the fact that I spent years training as an artist because that training really shaped my brain and shaped my approach to problem solving in a way that I use every day when working with patients and when working with clients. And really design, design is about solutions to problems. So whether it's product design, whether it's um, visual design, um, whether it's logo design, any form of design is about creating a solution to a problem or a need that exists in the world. So really it's not that far of a leap 
to, to be able to utilize problem solving and meeting of needs when working with a client. Um, and so it, it, it goes much deeper than simply, sure, I do use lots of arts and crafts and um, artistic processes when working with uh, teenagers or children. But even when working with an adult in a purely talk-based environment, um, I can feel that creative part of my brain um, working just in a different way than it might work if I were standing in front of a canvas or um, you know, working with wood or clay or a sculpting medium. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I, I feel much the same way. I, I was an English major in college and I, I would say not a week goes by where I don't consciously at some moment in a therapy session make some sort of association with something I learned or the, some way I was trained to think sort of as a someone who studies literature um, that, that makes a connection with what I'm doing um, in therapy, which I just think is endlessly fascinating. And, uh, you know, we should be talking about this more. I feel like this is a, <laughs> this is a really right. fascinating uh, topic. But let's, let's kind of um, transition a little bit to, I want to hear more about kind of what you do currently. So tell us a little bit about your current work and Therapy Dallas. Sure. So Therapy Dallas is a group practice specializing in evidence-based intervention for children, adolescents, and adults in the Dallas area. Um, we are a collection of therapists who have a number of different specialties. Um, personally, my primary specialty is anxiety. So I really love working with patients who struggle with anxiety. And whether it's working with children, adolescents, or adults, I enjoy everything related to um, really a blend of cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy. And in addition to that specialty, I really enjoy parent consultation. So I do lots of work with parents who are trying to make sense of what's going on with their child, how their interactions might either be inadvertently exacerbating or um, you know, making more complicated some of the difficulties or what they might do to um, lessen some of the difficulties or the tension in the, in the home. And so um, those are two of my really joys in doing and doing therapeutic work. But in our practice, we, we treat concerns much broader than that. So we will work with children as young as age three. Um, I will say it's wonderful to work alongside play therapists. Um, there are lots of different kinds of therapy and play and activity therapy are particularly well suited for young children. Um, you can work with a child as young as age three. Um, by the time they hit eight or 10, kids are, can be well suited to either modality. Some work really well in a play-based environment, Other work, others will work um, just as readily, if not more effectively in a talk-based environment. But having both of those types of therapy in our practice, the play and what we call talk-based, helps us reach lots of different kinds of needs and kinds of kids. And um, you know, we work with an array of presenting concerns from anxiety to depression to trauma. Um, we work with families who are going through um, transitions related to divorce or related to moves or school changes. Um, we do work with OCD. We do work with um, just a lot of relationship difficulty. And so um, there are certainly concerns with which we don't work as frequently. And that's the piece when we will refer to somebody in the community. So we love knowing really well what we work well in. And then working with the community to help a patient get their needs met in other places when we might not be the best fit. Um, 
but we really, really like working alongside each other. And um, I am for sure a better and stronger therapist working alongside people whose specialties and whose modalities differ from my own. That keeps it interesting. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating because I, I think that's one of the underappreciated hallmarks of a of a good therapist is if they are you know really not just willing but um, enjoy kind of working with other people and kind of know their own sort of specialty and are happy to kind of refer out to others. I always think mm-hmm. that, that's one of those mm-hmm. when I hear people talking about that, I'm like, check, that's good. I want you in my file. <laughs> um, let's- yes, we tend to avoid people who list 25 or 30 different specialties yeah. as things that they call their specialties. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like you to be a little bit, a little bit more narrowed in your scope and your quote specialty. Right. So let's, I want to, I want to kind of drill down a little bit more into anxiety specifically. Um, so what are some, well, actually first, I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but since you brought up the difference between um, talk therapy and play therapy with kids, can you briefly just sort of sketch out like literally what, what, are, what do those look like? Like what is, what's the difference in how, what's a typical session in play therapy versus talk therapy with a, with a child? Right. So first I'll say, I think that's a great question. And it's in part because it has taken me years of working alongside play therapists to um, be able to get a really good sense of how to answer that question. Because I think play therapy is honestly one of the more misunderstood versions of therapy. Um, Parents will frequently come to our office and say, oh yeah, we tried play therapy, but it didn't work. And when you ask and say, well, gosh, tell me the course of therapy. What did it look like? There's often a misconception that play therapy involves bringing your child to a room filled with toys, closing them behind the door with a provider, letting them play for 50 minutes and then emerge. Done. That's all we do. We're just playing and I'm paying someone to play with my child. Like, how is this really working? So when play therapy is done right, the child will actually feel as if it went about like that. They feel as if they get to come to a space with somebody who pays um, incredible and sustained attention to them. Um, They will tell you that for the most part, they probably got to play in the way they wanted to play and with the toys that they chose. And if it's done well, they should feel like they're playing. But when it is done well, there's a lot of work that's happening within that. And so um, first we talk about the fact that the toys are selected, not collected. You want the toys to be very intentionally selected to elicit certain themes. So for example, you might have a dollhouse with a number of different figurines and figures that can be chosen by the child to represent members of the family. There might be um, a, a play kitchen and that has to do with uh, feeding others, caretaking for others, or maybe hoarding and keeping for oneself. Um, There could be a dress up section that allows kids to try on different costumes and or identities. There could be a bot bag or tools for, a bot bag is one of those little bags that you punch that stays upright for the most part. Or tools for uh, aggression, foam swords, you know, Nerf guns, things like that. So all the toys have been very intentionally selected. And during the course of a play therapy session, um, there are varying degrees of how directive a therapist will be versus how much they'll let the child direct. But the theory is that by filling the room with these toys, you are enabling the child to really express what's going on in their worlds. And so if we think about it as adults, we've got tons of words, tons of um, vocabulary uh, at our fingertips and in our brains. Kids don't yet have all of that. 
So play becomes the language and the toys are the words. So when you provide a child these more robust mediums through which to express themselves, the therapist can then get deeper insight into what's going on in the child's world. So simple example, let's say they're playing in the dollhouse or in a sand tray. If they were to choose a T-Rex to represent one parent and say a toy mouse to represent another parent, well, we can interpret something from that in terms of what that marital dynamic might look like or what the child's relationship with the T-Rex versus the mouse might look like. Again, that's a very kind of, you know, simplistic example. But um, by having all these toys and, and materials available to the child, they can show us their world and share their world in a much less laborious and more natural way. So play therapy would look like that, a child getting to work through the room, and then the play therapist being able to make interpretations make reflections, ultimately work towards being able to teach some explicit coping skills and to help the child try to practice new things in the home environment. If, for example, they're working on frustration tolerance or a mad plan or something like that. Now on the talk side, the room looks totally different, as you might imagine, rather than it being a room that's filled with toys and does not have a couch or you know a coffee table. In talk therapy, the rooms will often look much like a living room. In fact, I've had a number of patients comment, um, gosh, it feels like a home in here, which I think is actually the nicest compliment to an office because you want it to feel comfortable. And so in that space, you're sitting in what feels more like a living room and the medium is predominantly talk. Granted, each method borrows from the other. So I will certainly bring out certain games or fiddle objects, markers, paper, et cetera, when working with a child, just the way that a play therapist is going to use words and use language when working with kids. But um, usually it's around the age of 10-ish, eight to 10 that we begin to wonder which space might be better suited for the child. And even though age is the point at which we start thinking about it, we take into account a number of different other factors to decide what might be best because a 14 year old might be beautifully suited to play or activity therapy. And there could be times that you treat a seven year old in a more talk-based model. It just depends. Yeah, it's funny. I often think with some of my clients, our therapy sessions would be more productive if we could go like shoot hoops at the park and talk. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, sort of walk. yes. Well, and that's um, why there are all of these in other parts of the country. There are lots of different modalities like wilderness therapy, hiking mm, therapy, yeah. um, lots of different types of therapy that I think are meant to keep the body moving, which for kids will often facilitate more ready discussion of things that might be difficult. Right. So what kind of zooming in now on, on anxiety in kids specifically, what would you say are some, you know, what are the top one or two kind of biggest misconceptions or confusions out there when it comes to anxiety in kids? Like, are there other things like kind of themes you, you see over and over again when you, when you talk to parents or, or other people? You know, I think, I think one of the, one of the biggest misconceptions would be that young children, really young children, can't be worried enough to, you know, to warrant therapeutic intervention. I can't tell you the number of times that when I'll share with people, they're asking about our practice or our group, and I'll say, sure, we'll, we will treat children as young as three, that they'll furrow their brow and look at me and say, why would a three-year-old possibly need to go to therapy? What could a three-year-old possibly be worried about enough to need therapy? And 
three-year-olds can worry a lot. They can worry a lot. Um, so in part, I think it's that adults have a hard time sometimes connecting with what can be truly worrisome to a three-year-old and making sense of the fact that, respectively speaking, a three-year-old or a four-year-old might be as worried about whatever it is that they're worried about as an adult might be about losing a job, going through a divorce, etc. It's all relative because young children have far fewer coping skills. So their worries can still be felt as powerfully as what more complex worries can be felt by older adults. I think the other piece is probably a misunderstanding of the prevalence of anxiety. Um, worries are very normal. Everybody worries. Everybody should worry at some point. It's a very normal part of being human. But um, I think I think not many people would know that it's one in three children that by the time by the time you reach 18, one in three children will meet criteria for a formal anxiety disorder, which that which makes anxiety disorders the most prevalent mental health disorders during childhood and adolescence. And I, I think that's um, not a very well-known fact because we hear so much more in the media, um, at least up until recently. We've heard so much more about depression, about autism, ADHD. Those are just some of the really popularly discussed ones. But really, anxiety tops the charts in terms of most frequent uh, mental health disorder during childhood and adolescence. Yeah, which is so interesting too, because I, I think certainly in my clinical experience, and I, I think there's probably some data to, to back this up too, but we're, we're pretty good at treating anxiety <laughs> in a relative way compared to other disorders. Um, and so it's, it's often almost doubly tragic, right? That it's, it's, it's a much more pervasive problem than people realize. But if you can get someone in, uh, if you can get a kid in with a, with a good provider, it's, it's very, um, it's very workable. So you, you sort of um, mentioned that Obviously, everybody worries, everybody gets anxious sometimes. Can you talk a little bit more about how do you, what's the difference? Like, how do you know when a kid is maybe progressing from normal, you know, everyday amounts of worry or anxiety into something that um, is or could quickly become like a more serious or formal anxiety disorder? Like, what, what would be some kind of common like tip offs to that? Sure. So, first, let's, let's think about the baseline. The baseline is that anxiety, as I mentioned, is, is a really normal part of life. So first we want to think about when do certain anxieties occur naturally during development and growth. And for example, we can use the concept of um, stranger anxiety or stranger danger in an infant. So many infants, most infants, almost all, will go through a period when they're somewhere between kind of nine to 11 or 12 months when suddenly they become very uncomfortable being around strangers. And previously, they would go readily to strangers, they would be cuddled by them, coo at them, smile at them, but then something shifts in the brain and it's about a child's awareness of boundaries and kind of who they are and who is distinct and who is the parent and who is not. But there are a lot of factors that go into the fact that normally during this phase, kids will become anxious, infants will become increasingly anxious and very anxious about being around or passed off to strangers. Then as they progress out of this phase, it becomes 
maybe not entirely comfortable, but much more tolerable to be around strangers and to separate from parents to be with strangers. So if we use this as an example, we can say that it is developmentally typical and even normal to have social anxiety, a form of social anxiety, for example, during this time. Now, let's say that we're fast forwarding and we're at three or four years of age. While it might be difficult to leave a child in a daycare setting and to have a drop off where they are needing to, you know, stay with strangers because it's the start of the school year, um, that's normal in the beginning. But if, for example, we are still really, really struggling a month, two months, three months in, or with young children, that can be the case. But let's say we're at fourth or fifth grade and we're still having lots and lots of anxiety about being around strangers, around um, being in social situations that are new or different. Well, now we are outside of a phase during which it is truly developmentally typical. And if it's interfering with everyday life and going beyond just kind of the jitters of being in a new environment, now we know that it's something that's clinically relevant. If it's disrupting the child's life and getting in the way of them being able to separate for school, for campouts, for other kinds of things. So one is considering the age during which, you know, again, there's an age when kids are naturally and normally afraid of thunderstorms. And then there are points at which really we should be able to use our cognitive school skills to keep us um, calmer during thunderstorms. So we can think about times like that where we pass in and out of phases in life where anxiety is more or less normal. But you can also think about your own child and your own child's baseline. And that's when I encourage parents. I say, you know, use your gut. Parents' guts are usually pretty good in this regard. And if you look up and your child just isn't seeming like himself and seems much more anxious or concerned or preoccupied and has been for several weeks as compared with how he used to be, that's another good point at which you might want to check in and explore what could be going on. Yeah, that's great. I love the developmental kind of context in that. I think that's so important. And but but hard. I think hard for people who aren't trained specifically in um, in psychology and developmental psychology to to kind of wrap their head around. So I, I'm glad you kind of pointed that out. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for those who are not trained in it, what what can be really helpful is to think about a tipping point. And a lot of parents can figure out this tipping point if watching their own child. And the tipping point is the concept that prior to the tipping point, having a certain amount of anxiety is functional and helpful. So for example, we want to be just worried enough about cavities that we choose to brush our teeth, right? But and we wanna be just worried about being smacked by a car when we cross the road that we look both ways. But the point at which we're so worried about cavities that we're brushing our teeth seven times a day Ooh, we have passed the tipping point or the point at which we are so worried about getting struck by a car that we find ourselves immobilized at the crosswalk, unable to go. That's also a point at which our anxiety has passed the tipping point. So the tipping point is the point at which as you approach it, the level of anxiety that you have is no longer fueling adaptive, healthy, functional behaviors. It begins to actually undermine your otherwise intact and healthy behavior. And it's now causing you to be stuck are causing you to struggle. So what you wanna do is try to catch your child before they hit that tipping point. Um, it's somewhat easier to look up and go, oh, we have tipped, we are already on the flip side. But if you can see it coming, that's, that's really the prime opportunity to explore and to intervene and to help kind of recapture the functionality of the lower scale worries so that they're not tipping and getting to the point that they're undermining healthy functioning.
Yeah, that's great. I like that concept a lot. So we could spend hours talking about this next question, but I, I want to try and I want to uh, walk a fine line of asking you to kind of briefly walk through, like, what are the most common types or forms of anxiety that show up with kids? And just kind of briefly, like, what do those look like? I mean, I know people have heard about OCD or they've heard about um, social anxiety. So can you can you kind of give us a sampling of what the most common forms or types of anxiety sure. are? Sure. Yes. And those break down by age. And so if we think about young children, predominant concerns among young children have to do with separation, right? So separation from the parents, that's when we might see a lot of separation anxiety. Um, separation also comes with sleep, which is really one of the most challenging separations for a child to navigate because they're dipping into a a space of temporary unconsciousness where they are truly separate from the parent. So in young children, we will see um, anxiety related sleep difficulty, trouble separating sleeping in their own beds, trouble separating for drop off, etc. Um, as children begin to get older and they begin to enter into um, middle school, we'll see more worries about performance and about uh, social concerns. So as kids are making friends, falling in with their social worlds, um, beginning to really work in school and see that how they work might be different from the person next to them, that's when we begin to see um, more generalized worries. So you can have generalized anxiety disorder, you can have performance anxieties. Um, again, you can have social anxieties or begin to have you know levels of panic that are triggered by various things. Um, and then of course, more broadly, we also see concerns that are pertinent to global stressors like what's happening right now with the pandemic. You can see stressors related to um, family and relational shifts, whether it's divorce or moving or changing schools. Um, but predominantly, you're gonna see more of the separation related concerns for younger ones and academic performance and social for the older kids. Gotcha, thank you. To what extent are parents involved in their kids' therapy? So if I've got a kid and I think they're, maybe it's not quite the tipping point yet, but I wanna be proactive and I wanna, Get on the ball and, and take them in. Um, it, do I just drop them off and they they go into the room for a while and then come back after after an hour? Like how how does that work? Like to what extent are parents involved in their kids' therapy? Well, hopefully they are really involved. I think what you described is sometimes the fantasy <laughs> that you can just bring your child to a place and sort of dust your hands as you drop them in um, into the therapeutic office and. Um, they come out magically more robust in terms of coping skills. Um, we work really closely with parents and I am a huge believer in the power of parenting in the concept, like in, in the context of treating a child. And so whether you are religious or not, I liken this sort of to church in that, you know, we all have the concept of what it would be like, you know, somebody who goes to church for one hour on Sunday doesn't necessarily live by or practice the spiritual attributes or, you know, philosophies throughout the week is probably going to get less out of their spirituality or church experience than the person who goes to church on Sunday, but maybe also has some sort of practice that they follow throughout the week that keeps them connected to their faith and kind of keeps them thinking about what the homily might have entailed. And parenting 
is no different when it comes to a child's therapy. So yes, we could just drop the child into the office and sure, there would be therapeutic benefit to the way that we interact with the child in that 50 minutes, but they will take away so much more and experience such greater benefit if, because the parent is attuned to what's happening through parent consultations, through conversations with the therapist, et cetera, if the parent is able to encourage the child to work on and to explore throughout the week what's happening in the session during the session. And so that does involve, um, sometimes parents might pop in for the first or last 10 minutes of a session or even both. Sometimes they're coming in by themselves without the child there, or it might be a parent and child who are talking together for the beginning or the end of session. Sometimes we bring the parents in all by themselves for their own 50-minute parent consultation sessions. Those can be really helpful and really powerful. And just so you don't have to take my word for it exclusively, I will say that um, there's some really exciting new research that's out um, out of the Yale Child Studies Center that has just come out showing that parent consultation for children with anxiety disorders is actually showing in these initial studies to be as effective in managing child anxiety as is direct individual therapy with the child. And this is exceedingly exciting because it means that for the kids who might not respond well to individual therapy, or for example, right now during a pandemic, when a young child isn't going to respond well to teletherapy, we have this incredible other tool of what I call kind of top-down work through the parent that can help meaningfully and efficaciously change the child's experience with anxiety. Awesome. Really, yeah, really encouraging. Um, let me, we're going to shift gears here to an entirely different segment, but I have, I have one final question while we're on um, in this sort of area. You have a reputation for being a very excellent therapist and getting very good results. Um, what, well, I want to ask you, what do you attribute your effectiveness as a therapist too. And the, I'll preface that by saying the reason I ask is it's sort of a sideways way of getting into this question that I think a lot of parents have, which is how do I find a therapist who will be good, who will be good for my child? So I wonder if you can kind of tackle both of those questions together. Like what, what is it that you, what do you think makes you especially effective? And how is that something other people can sort of look for? What are some kind of general characteristics? Well, Gosh, you were very kind, Nick. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, I think, all right, let me think about this from the standpoint of effectiveness. Um, I will say, I love my job. I love my job. And I, you know, grew up with parents who were both very passionate about their work. And really one of my wishes in growing up was that I wanted to find a job that I loved as much as what I saw my parents loving their jobs. And so um, I think when you work with somebody, I'd like to think that when you work with somebody who really loves their job, you feel it. And I think that brings me to this piece about the relationship. So um, of course you always want, in, in choosing a therapist for your child, you wanna start with your like baseline requirement as being excellent training. You want the therapist to be well-trained. And of course, you know, you can Google anybody and kind of figure out where they trained and what they have um, in their back pocket in terms of those credentials. But then I think what is equally important after you've kind of checked that box is, is the rapport, the relationship, the alliance that you can develop with a therapist. 
it has to feel right because there are tons of really qualified people out there. And so while there are lots of qualified people, when you sit with a therapist, you need to feel that connection. Sometimes you can feel that over the phone during, um, you know, an initial call. Um, sometimes it takes, you know, a couple of sessions sitting with someone. Sometimes you feel it right away. I think it's honestly, I think it's maybe it's a little bit like dating in that there are times that you might go, oh, yes, no, we are not coming back for a second cocktail here. Um, but then other times you might feel an instant chemistry. So maybe maybe that's a good word for it. We're looking for a certain chemistry. That's good. And that's good. That's a good metaphor. I, I tend to use test driving, which maybe is a little okay. off, but. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, whether it's right, it's test driving or it's, it's chemistry, it's about wanting something that you feel interested in and that you want to come back. It needs to feel compelling. And I think the reason why is that it then needs to be able to carry you as a parent through times that you might be pretty pissed at the therapist and do not like what they have to say. Um, because like in all relationships, there are going to be goods and there are going to be hards. Um, but I think if you can feel that good chemistry with a therapist and you can truly trust them and trust that even when the times are hard and you don't like what they have to say or what they're sharing with you, um, the combination of training and rapport is going to be what helps take the work really far. I, you know, I, I ask a version of this question to a lot of people um, who are therapists, because I'm very, I think it's a really important question that as a field that we understand better how to kind of match up, um, you know, clients and therapists for kind of optimal experiences. I've never heard someone mention that, that idea of really loving what you do and finding someone who really feels passionate about what they do. I think that's just such a great answer. Um, and I, in part, because I, I feel like it's very palpable. Like you can tell just in any career, you can tell when someone um, everything's tough sometimes, you know, but you can tell when people really, um, are passionate about what they do. So I think it's a fantastic yeah, tip. I, you know, it, it makes me think of, um, the concept of listening to a musician. And so I think we've probably all had the experience of, let's just use piano. For example, you can have a technically skilled pianist who plays with like supreme technicality. And if you listen to that person play a certain piece, and then let's say we put next to that person or right after them, a musician who is also technically skilled, but is truly passionate about the piece and might actually make some mistakes, but just lives and breathes playing the piano. You can feel and hear a difference in the music, even though it's the same song, it's the same keys in theory that are being played. And I think what you're looking for is, yeah, the person who feels it, who really loves it, because lots of people can have the technical training but you're looking for somebody who um, wants to come to work every day, wants to work with your child. It really is, I think, a genuine honor to work with the clients with whom we work. Um, a parent is entrusting me with their child behind a closed door to do very meaningful work. And so I think there's a certain gravity to that and you wanna match that gravity with a passion. I feel like we should mic drop there. But we're not going to because we have way more to talk about. <laughs> we are going to switch into a little halftime program here. Not we're a little more than halfway through probably, but um, we're going to do a little round robin exercise um, called embarrassing blunders and tricks of the trade. Uh, <laughs> you're the first person I've done this with, Kristen. So um, thanks for being a guinea pig. Great. <laughs> right. So what we're going to do is right. I thought it'd be fun if each of us, because we're both... Um, we are both psychologists and practicing therapists, and we are also both relatively new parents. Um, 
So I thought we would look at sort of give a an in sneak peek into the real world of uh, therapist parents and like what it's really like. <laughs> so okay. I think the, okay. the the first question, and we'll kind of alternate. We'll go back and give our own uh, answers briefly to these questions. Um, embarrassing blunders. I'm You're not, not the only one alone in my vulnerability. You get to here. see my dirty laundry too. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> so Good. the first question is. What's a parenting blunder you've made that's especially embarrassing given your training and experience as a psychologist? Okay, all right, yes. <laughs> okay, vulnerable making, here we go. So um, our son, he's, he's three and a half. And as is the case with three and a half year olds with three nagers, there are a lot of big feelings a lot of big feelings kicking around. Um, and you know, I'm human. So sometimes after a long day of his big feelings, I tend to have my own big feelings. So there was this one day that, gosh, he had just been difficult, really difficult. So many big feelings, so much irritability, so much demand um, of, of me that and there was were, there were other stressors going on you know like when none of us get to parent in a vacuum like even if you're having your hardest parenting day well there's also like work and home responsibilities and maybe you're in a relationship you know hopefully you're in a relationship with somebody who's co-parenting so there can be these other stressors that are happening too all right so i'm really stressed out it's been a very long day wait wait, wait. i gotta interrupt I just... you therapists get stressed out <laughs> <laughs> never never we don't have any of our own anxieties right. or nope. stressors okay. or no, okay. none. Um, <laughs> anyway, you're stressed out. So, right. And I, I basically, I hit my wall. I hit a limit and I got to a point where I was so irritable and so angry and so acutely frustrated that I knew I was going to explode. I didn't want this explosion to happen directly in front of our three-year-old because <laughs> of course I'm not wanting to model new ways of expressing large feelings. And at the time, I think my husband had walked into the room, so I knew that I could exit the room. The nearest room was the garage. That felt good. So I exit to the garage, stage left, and I think probably let out some sort of primal scream or frustration after I close the door, you know. And then I calm myself for a few moments of, uh, you know, being in the garage, just doing my deep breathing and, you know, clenching my fists, all this business. I come back in and there's my son kind of staring at me, having heard probably the yell that happened, the scream that happened Primal in the garage. Primal scream therapy you were trying to do on yourself. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. And, you know, in the moment he's fine. I mean, he, he was surprised and he's like, you know, mommy, are you okay? Mommy, are you still mad? Mommy, are you frustrated? Um, but what, what was really impactful about it was that to this day, this was probably six plus months ago to this day. Occasionally, if he picks up that I'm growing increasingly, increasingly frustrated, he'll look at me and say, mommy, do you need to go to the garage? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So um, that's a moment where, yeah, I wish I would have contained it even more than that, but sometimes you just can't. So well, that's yeah, that's a good one because it it uh, dovetails very well with my uh, my first story here. Kind of a similar setup, long day, a lot of stress, stressful day. Um, got home, 
and went about our evening and it was, you know, we're trying to get the girls. I have three girls, a 10 month old, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, a newly minted five-year-old. Um, and the five-year-old, Elena was the, the two girls, two oldest actually were in their room and they were supposed to be getting ready, cleaning up their room, getting ready for bed. And they were just taking forever. You know, I go in there and I say, girls, come on, let's, you know, let's go chop, chop. I leave and I come back. I probably came back three or four times. And the fourth time I came back, I, I went in there and the room was still a mess. <laughs> My oldest daughter was sitting on the floor next to this heap of little blankets that they had built a fort out of. And she was, I, I looked at her, I, I watched, I, was, I could feel the like anger kind of bubbling up. And she was meticulously trying to fold this little blanket. She'd fold it one way and then she'd pull in the end to kind of match the corners up and it would like disrupt the other side of the blanket. And then so she'd turn it around and like pull the other corner back and she did this three or four times. And <laughs> I just, I just lost it and I walked over there. I, this is, this is embarrassing. I literally grabbed it out of her hands. I threw them all like in the closet and I said, just put your pajamas on and go brush your teeth. <laughs> and I, I just, and then, you know, they did, but she had this look of like, oh my God. And, and so I think the, the real, there's a lot of blunders in there. There's <laughs> a lot of uh, things I regret, but the, in some ways, the one that kind of hurts the most is that one of the things I really value the most as a, as a parent that I really want to try and instill in my kids is to, to let them learn on their own, to let them kind of struggle through things and, and learn whether it's learning how to buckle their sandals for the first time or learning how to, you know, write their letters or whatever it is, or play with a toy, finish a puzzle or something like that. And that's exactly what my daughter was doing. Like she was learning how to be careful and like considerate in putting away her things and being like neat and conscientious. And, and I just <laughs> ended that <laughs> like right as it was going. So yeah, that's, uh, that's one of my, one of my big ones. Um, you know, I have such empathy for that because what you're talking about is this incredibly challenging balance of instilling and teaching the life skills that we know to be important, while also just trying to get through the day and, and get the things done that need to be done. And so that's a real, it's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge, especially as you have more and more children in the mix, because um, both of those pieces are so important for her to learn that, yeah, sometimes we just have to move faster. Um, and if I can't move fast, somebody's gonna come in and move it faster for me. Um, but it does feel at the same time heart-wrenching to have to interrupt a process that you know you've been working to instill, you know, for so many weeks or months or years. Yeah, it's tough. It's a really tough balance. Right. Well, let's, let's move on to, uh, to lighter things. The, the, the second little segment here is called Tricks of the Trade. And the question here is, what's a way in which your training and experience as a psychologist has been especially helpful as a parent that you probably would not have had had you not been trained and worked as a therapist or, or psychologist? Can you, can you think of anything there? Sure. Um, you know, I think, well, I started to say tolerating big emotions, mm. but then I kind of gave myself away with the garage story, meaning that I can't always tolerate them. But, um, you know, honestly, I, I, one of them that comes to mind is this. 
as a psychologist before, and people all the time ask like, oh, are you so different now that you have children? You know, is your work so different? And, you know, sure, the work has changed some. I'm certainly far more empathetic than I think I could have ever been before. Um, But, you know, training is training. And a lot of the information and the core strategies stay the same. Um, And one of the ones that I really try to carry with me is the concept of consistency and the concept of really being intentional in the parent-child interaction um, in terms of how this can shape a child's perspective, anxiety, et cetera. And so I know from my work how important it is to um, send messages in a way that don't exacerbate anxiety that allow the child to make sense of the world in the way that he or she is naturally inclined to do as compared with overlaying it with messages about the world being scary or upsetting or too much for the child to manage on his own. And so simple example for that, um, kind of concrete example. I grew up in a family where um, we've got relatives with a lake house and in growing up, we would all play at the lake house. And one of the rules was that everyone wears a life vest, right? It's just, you're going to wear a life vest if you were on the dock or near the water in a life vest, no questions asked. And even as a child, I would hear different explanations for that. If we would challenge and whine as was our, you know, developmental right to whine about the life vest, some of the parents and adults would say things like, you know, well, yeah, you have to wear a life vest because why, why, why? Well, because if you hit your head just the right way and you're not wearing a life vest, you're going to sink to the bottom of the lake. Okay, that's one answer. But then there would be other relatives in the family who would say things like, wearing a life vest helps me find you quickly and easily Mm -hmm. if something happens and you need my help. Huh. We're both talking about the same thing. We're both explaining why we have to wear the life vest, which is a safety issue. But obviously the first message is so laden with anxiety producing stimuli. And the second one has more to do with proactive help and safety. So I think given my focus on anxiety, I do work really hard when answering questions that our son might ask, when um, teaching him things, when talking about the world to really always question to to be inquisitive and to reflect upon what messages infuse anxiety and which are more neutral. And I always try to go more toward the neutral, the neutral style message. Yeah, that's great. I think mine, and and this is a very um, basic one from the perspective of of a a therapist or psychologist, but I think it's, I'm, I'm almost positive. I would not have had this had I not had my training in psychology, but it's the idea of validating emotions. Um, and so an example that just happened recently was my second daughter who's three and there's a little, she's just speed demon on her, on her bike now that she learned how to ride her bike. And we, she was up on a little hill kind of at the end of the cul-de-sac and she was getting ready to really like, she likes to go up to the top and then like really charge down, but she was on the side and there was this little Mm -hmm. like gravel patch um, with some loose gravel and she started going down and she just, it was one of those like slow motion crashes where you can kind of like both of us could kind of tell that like she yes. was wiping out and she was going to wipe out hard. You feel your chest catch. Yep. And she actually <laughs> like looked up and looked at me and I saw like just the like terror in her, in her eyes and she wiped out and, you know, and then she, but as soon as she, she fell down and it was a pretty hard fall. Um, she looked up, she wasn't crying, but she looked up at me and she did that like, oh my God, like it, almost like 
asking me if everything was okay. Um, yeah. Like I, I'm yeah. terrified. So it was like terror preceded pain um, almost. Oh. And then she, you know, she yeah. started wailing, and 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 so I, I went over there and I picked her up, and I, you know, she luckily didn't have any um, any major injuries other than a, a kind of a scraped knee. But I, I'm glad my kind of training kicked in, in that I like one of the first things I I said or, or thought to do was to try and validate how scary that must have been for her. So I, I think I said something as simple mm -hmm. as like wow, gosh, Bia, like that must've been really scary when you started to feel your wheels kind of like slipping and you knew you were going to fall. And she just did this adorable little whimper, like, yeah, you know, I, <laughs> it was really scary. Um, and I think, I just think that's so important because I, one of the things I noticed in my work with adults in, in therapy is something that is core to almost everybody who walks in my door with some kind of emotional difficulty is they they feel bad about feeling bad. They're anxious about yes. the fact that they're anxious. They're angry about the fact yes. that they're sad. They're guilty mm -hmm. about the fact that they're, that they're guilty, you know, like, and, and I, what, and that, that's just such a setup for so many different emotional struggles. And I think the, in a lot of ways, the antidote is, especially when your kids are young, is to validate emotions for them, to, to let them know that they can acknowledge how they're feeling. And that even though it's hard or scary, it's okay that they're feeling that way. And so I, I'm like eternally grateful for learning that because I just can't imagine at, like parenting without that, that simple little like tool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think you, yeah, you've said it beautifully. I, I've always said that having feelings about your feelings is far more complicated than just having your feelings, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know whether you've read um, one of my favorite books to recommend to parents of all time is the whole brain child Oh yeah. by Tina Payne Bryson, Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And they talk about name it to tame it. Yep. Just what you're saying, validating those huge emotions. And yeah, by giving permission, we can help kind of strip away some of the shame and some of the guilt about that, which then just leaves the core emotion which is much more manageable to work with than like the piled on other emotions yeah. and something that is yeah. painful, but not in any way bad. Doesn't mean anything's wrong right. necessarily just because something right. hurts doesn't mean it's bad for you. And it, exactly. Yeah. It's just such a, yeah, I just feel so grateful for that. Um, but enough of the, the feel good stuff. Let's get back to an, one more round of embarrassing blunders. Um, so Kristen, do you, do you have a second embarrassing blunder you'd like to share oh, with us? Oh gosh, I thought I was off the hook. I thought we had just skated your... away from that section. <laughs> um, you pass if you don't see. have another one. Um, no, no, let me think. Um, you know, this one, this is, yeah, this is probably that might read a little differently. It's because I'm a therapist that this is a good blunder of mine. Um, you know, and to your point, dovetailing on what you just said, we are trained as therapists to be incredibly validating and accepting and empathic of all emotions, right? So therapy is a place for all of those. And, you know, I, I noticed, uh, at some point I looked up and I'd recognized, you know, I'd worked really, really hard to validate all my son's, um, you know, reactions and big, powerful emotions and all those things. And, um, you know, I would still set limits, but I would really be explicitly validating about, oh gosh, you are so angry about that. And you are so still angry and so irritable and so frustrated. And 
at one point I looked up and I could realize that his pattern had developed where he would just really give it to me in terms of emotional expression. He was being rough. Like my experience was totally different from my husband's. He was just almost like running roughshod over me with all of these negative emotions all the time. And I ultimately looked up and I recognized that I was sort of turning into this therapist robot, like a therabot (laughs) who was just like, you are so angry. <laughs> like You are so frustrated. And I was working so hard to keep my own calm on the times that I wasn't, you know, in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> I was working so hard to keep my own calm that it was actually kind of a weird and artificial interaction because when he was getting this provocative, what is normal is for me to also get somewhat irritated and to be visibly frustrated. And I hadn't given myself permission to do that. And so when all of a sudden I kind of looked up and reflected, I need to be human. You know, like being a therapist does not mean you're not human. Um, I began to give myself more permission to be irritated and be frustrated and to say, you know what, this is not going well. And I'm starting to feel frustrated and I am going to take a time out. Man, the first time I said that, his eyes went huge. <laughs> um, I'm going to take it. And he goes, are you going to go sit on the stair? And I said, no, I'm going to go take a time out in my bedroom and I will come out when I am ready. But I began to recognize that like, he needs that feedback loop. Like I can be, I can be validating and be accepting and I can also be human. Right. And to let you know that after validating for so many minutes and so many hours and so long, I'm going to get frustrated and that's okay for you to know because it's important for you to learn how your actions and words impact others. And so, you know, once I gave myself permission to be a little bit more human and less of a therapist with my own child, um, that has made, has made a big difference. I have often wondered, I think there's an adage out there that therapists, kids are always, um, We'll just say, you know, the therapist's children often find themselves in need of therapy. And so <laughs> it's it's a good exercise to periodically look at ourselves and saying, what are we doing? Are we are we are we still being human? Right. Are we still being normal as parents? It always makes me think of uh, what about Bob, where the the dad, Dr. Yes. Marvin, has little hand puppets and always he's always calling these family conferences <laughs> with hand puppets, and the kids are just incredibly yes. embarrassed. <laughs> right. Uh, How do we not land our kids, yes, in that place right. moving forward? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, I love it. W- one of my blunders is you know, as a therapist, you're, um, or at least I was, it was sort of drilled into me that, especially when you work with kids, um, to really try and emphasize praising. Uh, effort rather than outcomes. There, there's a lot of yes, good work with yes. Carol Dweck's done a lot of work on sort of growth mindset and fixed mindset mm-hmm. stuff and how dangerous it can be if you, if everything you praise is an outcome, it's really a setup for your kids because the, the outcome them, itself is not something they have direct control over. Um, and there, there's, there's just a whole bunch of reasons why it's, it's, um, it's not a great thing to do to, <laughs> to be praising uh, sort of outcomes um, exclusively. And so I, I, you know, I try really hard uh, to, yeah, try to praise things that my kids actually have control over, things they can actually influence. And so like right. a really common one, I, just the other day, my uh, second daughter, the, the one who wiped out on the, on, the, <laughs> on the bike coming down the hill, I, I literally wa- opened the door after work, got home, walked through, and she came running up to me with this huge smile, this like crazy frizzy blonde hair all over the place and this big smile holding this huge um, like painting, like just sort of, they were doing watercolor painting or whatever. And she was saying, look, daddy, look at what I did. And it just came out of my mouth. Um, Wow, Bia, that's beautiful. Like, 
it's so pretty, like something like that, you know? And as soon as it was coming out of my mouth, I go, oh, <laughs> which is, it goes back to your point about like, we're all human, right? And you can't, you can't never praise an outcome. Like you're gonna tell your kids that their painting is beautiful right. every once in a while. Um, but, but the thing that, that, that I try to take away from that and, and really try to work on is that I think one of the reasons we do so much praising of outcome for like winning the game or painting a beautiful picture or getting, getting an A or whatever is it's just easier. Like it's, it's very obvious. Outcomes are obvious. They're tangible. But praising something else can be a lot more challenging. It takes more time. It takes more creativity. You know, if, I, if I'd had more presence of mind, I think I might have said something like something along the lines of, wow, like it looks like you worked really hard at that or like, oh, cool. Like, tell me about it. Something, you know, something like that. Um, that wasn't just to like, you did this and it's pretty, therefore good job. Um, so anyway, I, I, I think that that's something I like, I, I still frequently blunder with um, in, in small ways and big, but I, I try to be mindful of that idea that it, it's hard because it takes creativity and it takes effort um, to kind of navigate that, that little dilemma. Yeah. Creativity. You're so right. It takes creativity to dig in there and be like, what do I praise here? What do I find? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So let's, I want to get your, your second and final uh, tricks of the trade. Do you have another um, little, especially helpful kind of technique or, or idea maybe that you learned as a, as a therapist or you've gained it through your experience that's been helpful as a relatively new parent? You know, um, I think it's, I think, you know, what a really important thing to do is that it helps in my training and my work with parents. Sure, there's tons of strategies that are out there. Lots of like, you know, one of the things I love to do, for example, is to I love to work up a great star chart. Mm -hmm. um, I can spend weeks and months working with parents on getting that star chart just right and getting all the nuances to a place where we can modify it and change it and shift it. So, you know, positive reinforcement. There's such power behind all of that. So there's tons of strategies and techniques out there. But with all of those, I think what I really have carried with me is keeping my eyes on the prize while parenting. And that being that I know that what's really most important here out of all of it, out of all the tools and strategies that are available, out of all the big feelings that might be flying around, out of all the you know worries that a child or a parent might have, what's really critically important is the parent-child attachment and connection and that relationship. And you know that's gonna be most important. And it means that there might be times that while you aim for consistency, you let something go. You choose this battle, but not that battle. You deviate from you know, the schedule or the plan, this, that, and the other. But what needs to always reign supreme is the intentionality of keeping that attachment and connection with your child secure and safe and loving. And so within that, that allows for times that we are angry with each other, times that we are disappointed with one another, times that we are aligned with one another. Like it doesn't mean that you're placating your child at all costs, you know, because a truly secure attachment weathers conflict, weathers disappointment, weathers anger and all the feelings that go with. And so whenever those big feelings are there or whenever we're feeling like a certain strategy is not working, 
I always try to just come back to the fact that what we're trying and what we're doing is meant to build really secure relationships and that those relationships will then hopefully in the, be in the place to weather all kinds of challenges that come now and later in life. And so it is kind of that big picture thinking of let's make sure that we don't get caught too much in the weeds. Let's make sure that, you know, we do keep this piece top priority. And um, that then gives us a little bit of wiggle room when things feel like they veer off course. You know, Kristen, this would be a lot easier if you didn't keep interjecting mic drops in the middle of the podcast before it was over. <laughs> we should really just end right there. <laughs> um, and we are getting close, uh, but uh, let's, uh, I, I just, yeah, I, I think that is so key. And, and I think it's one of the best things for parents. A lot, of, it's interesting. There are a lot, like you said, there's lots of tools and tips and tricks and stuff that are all, all really great from star charts to techniques, but um, learning about attachment is actually, I think, a really something I think if you're kind of a curious parent about learning more about kind of the psychology of, of children and, and thinking through how you interact with your kids, especially during difficult times, that's learning about attachment, I think, is, is mm -hmm. a really good place to start. Um, yeah. Okay, I've got a final um, quick here. So I'm going to pivot, actually, because my, my first one, my, my first second option for this was uh, talking about my own difficult emotions. Which, which you kind of hit mm. with your, your second blunder and, and how instructive that can be for kids actually, it's to let them know that, mm -hmm. to, to have that modeled from parents that if you're like, if I'm frustrated, it's okay to say, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. Um, that you're not gonna mm. scar your kids because you're telling them that you're frustrated or sad or, or anxious. Um, right. But I, I think I've got one more, I'll sort of audible here. Um, one of the things that's really helped me so far anyway with my kids, I'm sure it'll be increasingly a challenge as, as they get older, <laughs> middle school, <woo. laughs> um, but putting childhood behavior into context developmentally. And that's sort of been a theme. I think you, you've really mentioned that a lot. It's clearly, it's a really important thing um, for you and the way you practice, but also the way you parent, but it comes up like, like a concrete example for me is my oldest daughter is very, spirited, strong-willed is probably the best way to describe it. Um, but a, the less charitable word that comes into my mind sometimes is defiant. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you need to go to timeout. Please go sit on the, you know, on the bench and no, right. I am not going to timeout. <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think, but I think it's been really helpful for me to understand that what looks like defiance, just sort of outright defiance, insubordination, <laughs> is right. if you think about it developmentally, she, she is learning how to assert herself and, and to figure out yes. and negotiate, okay, dad has desires and wants, and I have desires and wants. How do we like square that circle? How do we sort of make sense of that? Yeah. And I, you know, I actually, as, as hard as it is to stomach that overt defiance in the moment. Um, frankly, I would rather when she is 13 or 17, I would rather have a daughter mm -hmm. who airs a little bit on the side of being more assertive about what she wants and doesn't want than being kind of passive and just going with the flow, um, regardless of how she feels. So, so making that kind yeah. of reframe from defiance to she's trying to practice or figure out what it means to assert herself and what she wants. Um, and this is how she's learning to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're, what you're speaking to is the fact that any, I feel like almost any time that we find ourselves 
really struggling as parents and being like, oh, buckle up. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. Mm. There's some sort, it's just about finding, okay, what is the opportunity inherent to this? And so in that example, yeah, it's her opportunity to be navigating where the boundaries are, what, you know, how assertive one can be, et cetera. It's the, it's your opportunity to figure out, yeah, what do I want to do with this defiance? That's kind of, you know, peaking my existing frustration, but these are all, you're right. Anytime I try to remind myself that anytime we have huge meltdown emotions, it's not my responsibility to calm that down, to water it down, to make it stop. It's my responsibility as a parent to help him navigate his feelings in a way that's as functional as possible. And oftentimes that does not involve squelching it or throwing water on it or calming it down, you know? And so, yeah, I empathize with the fact that there are these challenges where we are trying to help them grow stronger in these moments. There are opportunities that are just hidden within. We just have to figure out what they are. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Kristen, but I have a few more questions, um, a few more fun questions I think I want to pepper at you before I let sure. you go. Um, sure. Which okay, famous figure from the history of psychology and mental health would you least like to have dinner with? If you got stuck <laughs> at a, at a oh wedding at a table with uh, some uh, historical figure from psychology, who are you just really crossing your fingers you don't get stuck next to? You know, this is going to blow minds. I feel like I shouldn't say this, but I feel like as much as I am, if I, okay, I'm going to go with the fact that the person I would least like to sit with is going to be opposite of somebody I would really love to sit mm. with. And so least likely to sit with is probably, um, and again, I feel like the lightning bolt is about to strike me. Um, I am a cognitive behavioral therapist by trade and trained in that and use it readily, but um, I love I love to use it flexibly. So I would probably least like to sit with somebody who would be extremely rigid in its applications. And that might be Beck, <laughs> given that I'm imagining that the way that Beck would, you know, kind of the founder of this movement, he would want this all to be applied very rigidly and very formulaically. And I would not find that either interesting or compelling. So that might be one of my least. That's so funny because my answer is Albert Ellis, who's also sometimes credited as being a, a father of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, yeah. He just seems so cranky. <laughs> Whenever I had to watch <laughs> therapy videos of him doing therapy with people, I thought, oh my God, he's so cantankerous and argumentative. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> That's so interesting. That, yeah, we both come out of that field and um, do not want the fathers of that that field to be out right. there with us. Yeah. Okay. So naturally, who, who would you want to sit with? Who's your ideal? Uh, yeah, I have always been just really fascinated with Carl Jung. So I have been. I'm I'm fascinated by the concept of the collective unconscious, um, of you know just the nature of his work with dreams. I tend to personally have remarkably vivid dreams, um, and so I've always been interested in his work in that regard. And just the concept of kind of our prominent selves and our shadow selves. I think his philosophies are really beautiful and very intriguing. So he would be my choice. Good one. So I'm going to go with someone whose philosophies are not usually recognized as beautiful or intriguing. Um, B.F. Skinner. <laughs> okay. and, and the reason I'm going to do this is I, I feel like he gets such a bad rap 
I feel, I feel like he has just really got the short end of the stick. Um, and so I would, I would just like to kind of pick his brain a little bit. And I feel like I grew up hearing, like, it's almost a pejorative when people talk about be, someone being, a, a technique being Skinnerian, right? It, it like sounds bad um, somehow. It sounds evil. Um, so I just, I, I want to I get his take on things. So that, that's who I'd want to sit next to, I think. <laughs> maybe, maybe in the fantasy, you get to go back in time and do a podcast with him Ooh. and really help kind of draw him out and let him be seen with his true colors, you know? It's a great idea. One day. Yeah. <laughs> um, any parenting books you're especially uh, a big fan of? I know you mentioned The Whole Brain Child. Um, anything else that comes right to mind that um, you could recommend? You know, that is, oh, oh gosh. Yeah, I do have a couple. Um, so yes, we do love The Whole Brain Child. And there are a couple of others written by those same authors, you know, No Drama Discipline, mm -hmm. um, Brainstorm for kids who are in the 12 to 25 age range. Um, I would love to recommend two for brand new parents or parents mm. of very young children. Um, one is one is a really heavy read if you want to really kind of read a depth oriented piece that is highly psychologically um, you know, fueled. Um, so definitely not for the light reader, but called Oneness and Separateness. And it is about the way a child moves from being one with his mother physically and psychologically to being separate and how that transition happens in basically, you know, from the time of birth up until around two to three years old. Um, it's beautifully written and it's, a, it's written years and years ago. So a classic and I think is um, really thought provoking. One that feels a little bit lighter and a little bit um, more accessible is called The Magic Years. And, um, you know, also written several years ago, but it's about parenting the child of zero to five. And now let me put a caveat on both of these. These are not books that tell you how to parent. Um, I'm actually not a big fan of those. These are books that talk about the inner world of the child, because I'm a big believer in that by understanding and gaining insight, if we learn to trust ourselves, then we learn how to shift our parenting as compared with being told by somebody else how to parent. So I like each of these from that perspective and that they help you delve into like the magic world and brain of a child and to make sense of things like defiance and, um, you know, imaginary friends and um, fantasy worlds and those kinds of things. You're gonna, um, go ahead. I would be, rem I'd be remiss if I didn't, it's not a parenting book, but I'd be remiss if I didn't do a shameless plug for um, Moose the Worry Mutt. Goes ah, to tell us about Moose the Worry Mutt. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. going to bring it up if you didn't. All right. All right. Shameless plug. Moose the Worry Mutt uh, goes to doggy daycare. Um, Moose is a very lovable chocolate lab who worries about everything. Um, actually was, um, late Moose, was uh, the dog of my, my co-author and really was like a 90 pound <laughs> chocolate lab who worried about everything. He had worried Labrador eyes, if you can picture oh. those. All the time worried about where his food was coming from where he buried his bone who was at the door all the things um and so we thought it would be fun to write a book um, where moose models how to um bark back at the source of his worries who happens to be fret the flea who perches on his shoulder and whispers the worried thoughts into his ear and so this book actually it teaches cognitive reframing it teaches kids how to recognize worries can be attributable to a little bug or, you know, bully that kind of sits on their shoulder and tells them to worry about stuff. And much like you've got that little bug, 
we can also dig deep and find inside of ourselves a brave counterpart. And in the story, it happens to be Mighty Moose, who then pops up mid-story, you know, um, and teaches Moose how to bark back at his worries. So um, we think it's a, a helpful book for kids who are learning, feeling anxious about going back to school, anxious about trying new things. Um, of course, you know, who knows where it will go. Perhaps we've, we've had all kinds of fantasies about um, sequels and other versions of Moose, Moose's uh, fear of cats, specific phobia. <laughs> Moose's, um, you know, dislike of the veterinarian, um, you know, fears about going, fears about medical procedures, etc. But um, Moose, Moose is very lovable and uh, in the end does learn to listen to his mighty Moose and becomes more of a warrior and less of a worrier. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time um, and coming on the show. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So um, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed doing this and I've been looking forward to it. So I'm, I'm so pleased to participate. People are welcome to learn more about our practice by going to our website, which is simply www.therapydallas.com. Um, there, you know, if you go to the share page on our website, the tab titled share, there's an opportunity to sign up for our mailing list. Um, if you're interested in learning about presentations, resources, etc., we've got lots of shared resources that are simply there on the website for the perusing and taking. Uh, and then if you're interested in learning more about Moose, you can visit moosetheworrymutt.com and find free downloadable therapeutic worksheets and even reach out to us if you would like a free lesson plan for using in the classroom or with kids of grade school age if they want to be learning that in the classroom either at home or virtually or in, in school. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.